Quote, Armed conflict in eastern Ukraine erupted in early 2014, following Russia's annexation of Crimea. The previous year, protests in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, against Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych's decision to reject a deal for greater economic integration with the EU were met with a violent crackdown by state security forces. The protests widened, escalating the conflict, and President Yanukovych fled the country in February 2014. One month later, in March 2014, Russian troops took control of the Ukrainian region of Crimea. Russian President Vladimir Putin cited the need to protect the rights of Russian citizens and Russian speakers in Crimea and southeast Ukraine. Russia then formally annexed the peninsula after Crimeans voted to join the Russian Federation in a disputed local referendum. The crisis heightened ethnic divisions, and two months later, pro-Russian separatists in the eastern Ukrainian regions of Donetsk and Luhansk held their own independence referendums. Armed conflict in the regions quickly broke out between Russian-backed forces and the Ukrainian military. Russia denied military involvement, but both Ukraine and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization reported the buildup of Russian troops and military equipment near Donetsk and Russian cross-border shelling immediately following the Crimea's annexation. The conflict transitioned to an active stalemate, with regular shelling and skirmishes occurring along front lines separating Russian and Ukrainian-controlled eastern border regions. In early February 2022, satellite imagery showed the largest deployment of Russian troops to its border with Belarus since the end of the Cold War. Negotiations between the United States, Russia, and European powers, including France and Germany, failed to bring about a resolution. In late February 2022, the United States warned that Russia intended to invade Ukraine, citing Russia's growing military presence at the Russia-Ukraine border. President Putin then ordered troops to Lansk and Donetsk, claiming the troops serving served a peacekeeping function. The United States responded by imposing sanctions on the regions and the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline a few days later. Nevertheless, just prior to the invasion, U.S. and Ukrainian leaders remained at odds regarding the nature and likelihood of an armed Russian threat with Ukrainian officials playing down the possibility of an incursion and delaying the mobilization of their troops and reserve forces. On February 24, 2022, during a last-ditch UN Security Council effort to dissuade Russia from attacking Ukraine, Putin announced the beginning of a full-scale land, sea, and air invasion of Ukraine targeting, targeting Ukrainian military assets and cities across the country. U.S. President Joe Biden declared the attack unprovoked and unjustified and issued severe sanctions against top Kremlin officials, including Putin and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, four of Russia's largest banks, and the Russian oil and gas industry in coordination with European allies. On March 2nd, 141 of 193 U.N. member states voted to condemn Russia's invasion in an emergency U.N. Council Assembly session, demanding that Russia immediately withdraw from the Ukraine, end quote. That excerpt, taken from an article published by the Council on Foreign Relations earlier this year, provides a wonderful summary of the events we have miraculously almost avoided talking about on this podcast up to this point. Despite the obvious correlation between this year's policy topic and the events which have taken place in the Ukraine throughout 2022, 
I've done my best to avoid an in-depth discussion of the crisis due to de the developing nature of the situation. As you all well know, hindsight is usually 2020, and as such, it's always a good idea to wait until the dust has settled to begin trying to analyze an issue as complicated as the crisis in Ukraine. Unfortunately for all parties involved, it doesn't appear as though the conflict will be coming to a close anytime soon. As such, I think it's important that we finally discuss it here, given the massive implications for both Russia and NATO, no matter the outcome. First and foremost, I think it is immediately important to recognize the damage that has been done in Ukraine up to this point, seeing as the loss of human life is by far the most important impact tied to the ongoing conflict. While Western media coverage on the issue spiked soon after the Russian invasion was launched, updates have become fewer and further in between, which might make it seem as though the intensity of the conflict has lessened over time. This is, unfortunately, not even sort of the case. As was reported by Rescue.org, a humanitarian watchdog group, quote, over 5,200 civilians have been reported killed in Russian attacks. Approximately 6.5 million people have reportedly been displaced within the country, with an additional 6.7 million forced to flee into neighboring Moldova, Poland, and other European states. Most of those who have left the country are women and children. Public infrastructure has also been destroyed, meaning millions of people are without adequate water, heat, and electricity, or unable to reach stores to buy basic necessities because roads and bridges are impassable. With Ukraine's cold winter months approaching, families are seeking shelter in damaged buildings, not suited to deal with sudden drops of temperature or heavy snowfall. The country's health system is crumbling as hospitals begin to run out of medicine and electricity is cut. Health facilities, including a maternity and children's hospital, have also been damaged during the invasion, another grave breach of international humanitarian law. End quote. Given the level of destruction outlined there, it is perhaps intuitive that other nations have stepped in. As stated in the original introduction to this topic, almost the entirety of the United Nations condemned the Russian invasion soon after it began. Yet, there is one organization that some may expect to be more involved than any other international group, given their history with Russian aggression. NATO involvement, which has been in many ways far from limited, has taken center stage, as those countries involved in the North Atlantic Treaty have done their best to support Ukrainian troops in their effort to push back the Russian invasion. As was noted in an article published by BBC just over a month ago, quote, at its recent summit, NATO members pledged millions of dollars worth of air defense systems to Ukraine to guard against Russian attacks on cities, towns, and civilian installations such as power stations using missiles and kamikaze drones. Germany is sending units of its Iris-T air infrared-guided defense system, which can shoot down aircraft, cruise missiles, and drones, and says the first four of them have already arrived in the Ukraine. The U.S. has pledged to send the NASAMS system, which can also shoot down aircraft, cruise missiles, and drones. The U.K., Canada, France, and Netherlands are also sending air defense systems. This comes on top of a massive amount of arms, which NATO countries have been sending Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February. The U.S. has given Ukraine weaponry worth $15 billion, including the long-range HIMS. 
ARS system, Javelin anti-tank missiles, howitzers, and switchblade kamikaze drones. End quote. The story of how Russia ended up once again invading Ukraine, the Ukrainian defense strategy, and NATO's involvement is a long one, and is concretely tied into the history of the region as a whole. So, sit back, relax, relax, and stay tuned as we discuss the story at length for the duration of today's episode. Welcome to the latest Patreon edition of Stock Issues, Russia's Greatest Temptation, presented by the Missoula Debate League. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and this week's episode finally fully examines the conflict which erupted in Ukraine this past February, with a focus on the implications for the NATO alliance. Stock Issues is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found, so don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to our RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. Things are always in motion over here at the Missoula Debate League, so check us out on social at Missoula Debate League, all lowercase, no spacing or punctuation, or visit our website at www.missoulaDebateLeague.com. Thank you for tuning in, and now, on to the episode. As with anything involving Russia, it is critical that debaters understand the history surrounding the conflict, as it provides the context which will make the contemporary events actually progress logically, as opposed to seeming entirely random. Given the long-storied history of the Russian Empire and, most importantly, Russian people, Russian leaders are almost always acting in historical context, much more than those leaders present in the U.S., for example. As such, in order to understand the Russian perspective, it is important that we dive into that history, examining the shared heritage between the two nations. Surprisingly enough, National Geographic does an excellent job providing a summarized analysis of that history in an article also published earlier this year. Quote, The two countries' shared heritage goes back more than a thousand years to a time when Kiev, now Ukraine's capital, was at the center of the first Slavic state, Kievan Rus, the birthplace of both Ukraine and Russia. In 988 AD, Vladimir I, the pagan prince of Novgorod and Grand Prince of Kiev, accepted the Orthodox Christian faith and was baptized in the Crimean city of Chersonesus. Excuse my pronunciation throughout the episode as well, not a native speaker. From that moment on, Russian leader Vladimir Putin recently declared, quote, Russians and Ukrainians are one people, a single whole. Yet, over the past 10 centuries, Ukraine has been repeatedly carved up by competing powers. Mongol warriors from the east conquered Kiev and Rus in the 13th century. In the 16th century, Polish and Lithuanian armies invaded from the west. In the 17th century, war between Polish, Lithuanian Commonwealth, and the Tsardom of Russia brought lands to the east of the Dnieper River under Russian imperial control. The east became known as the Left Bank Ukraine, Lands to the west of the Dnieper, or right bank, were ruled by Poland. 
More than a century later, in 1793, Right Bank, Western, Ukraine, was annexed by the Russian Empire. Over the years that followed, a policy known as Russification banned the use and study of the Ukrainian language, and people were pressured to convert to the Russian Orthodox faith. Ukraine suffered some of its greatest traumas during the 20th century. After the Communist Revolution of 1917, Ukraine was one of the many countries to fight a brutal civil war before being fully observed, uh, absorbed into the Soviet Union in 1922. In the, fall, or in the early 1930s, to force peasants to join collective farms, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin orchestrated a famine that resulted in the starvation and death of millions of Ukrainians. Afterward, Stalin imported large numbers of Russians and other Soviet citizens, many with no ability to speak Ukrainian and with few ties to the region, to help repopulate the East. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine became an independent nation. But uniting the country proved a difficult task. For one, the sense of Ukrainian nationalism is not as deep in the East as it is in the West, says former ambassador to the Ukraine Stephen Pfeiffer. The transition to democracy and capitalism was painful and chaotic, and many Ukrainians, especially in the East, longed for the relative stability of earlier eras. End quote. As is made clear in that summary, the evolution of both the Russian and Ukrainian states are inextricably interwoven, making the conflict somehow even more complicated than it seems on the surface. For thousands of years, the Ukrainians were dominated by different groups, with the Soviet Union playing the role of their most recent oppressor. It is perhaps of no surprise that the Ukrainian state has been challenging to bring back together, given the storied history of division within the nation. In fact, the Eastern Bloc is in many ways reminiscent of the Middle East. The historical boundaries within both regions were recently redefined by outsiders, and the result has been tragic to say the least. And yet, out of all the Eastern Bloc nations we have discussed over the course of this season, Ukraine probably has been the most successful in reconnecting the people and uniting the country as a whole. This transformation was detailed at length in an analysis article published by, the, by CSIS this past April. Quote, Though the relationship between Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians remains an object of contention in all three countries, Ukraine has made enormous strides in consolidating a shared civic identity, which includes the bulk of Russian speakers in eastern and southern Ukraine. The relative success of this project of making Ukrainians has accelerated Ukraine's decoupling from Russia, feeding concern in Moscow that time is running out to restore influence over its neighbor and justify a series of increasingly risky gambles to pull Ukraine back into Moscow's orbit. The story of the more than three decades since the Soviet collapse centers on the gradual diffusion of Ukrainianness across an ever wider swath of the country and its people. In a pattern familiar from both interwar Europe and the post-colonial Global South, the independent Ukrainian state became instrumental in forging a shared national identity among its inhabitants through education, official memory, the media, legislation, and other tools. Measured by language use, religious affiliation, ethnic self-identification, and political outlook, a much higher percentage of Ukrainian citizens today see themselves first and foremost as Ukrainian, including in parts of the country where Russian remains the predominant language. Political outlooks in Ukraine and Russia are diverging as well. Calls for Ukraine's integration with the European Union and NATO have grown substantially, 
in no small part in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea and occupation of Donetsk and Luhansk. Support for NATO membership, which hovered below 50% prior to the 2014 Russian invasion, has risen greatly, reaching 62% in early 2022. Meanwhile, more than two-thirds of Ukrainians, or 68%, support membership in the European Union. Regardless of the willingness of either organization to admit Ukraine, these attitudes reflect a seismic shift that makes the idea of reintegration with Russia harder to imagine. They also have implications for Ukrainian foreign policy, insofar as leaders such as Poroshenko and Zelensky, who have come to power in the shadow of war and occupation, prioritize deepening ties with the Euro-Atlantic West as a hedge against further Russian intervention. In 2016, NATO responded to the fears of member states along Russian borders by reinforcing its military capabilities in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania, and standing by its 2008 pledge that Ukraine and Georgia will become members. In 2019, the United States also abandoned the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty after accusing Russia of non-compliance, a step that would allow for nuclear deployments in Central and Eastern Europe as well as around the Russian periphery in Asia. Faced with this deteriorating security environment and calculating that the West was too divided and distracted to respond forcefully, Putin gambled on an all-out invasion in February 2022. Even with the reported 190,000 troops massed on the Ukrainian border when the invasion began, Moscow lacks the manpower to carry out a sustained military occupation, especially in the face of an insurgency sustained by foreign support. The failure of assaults on Kiev, Kharkov, and other cities in spring 2022 extracted heavy casualties and forced Moscow to pivot back to Donbass. U.S. and EU sanctions have hit Russia hard, with most of its banking sector cut off from access to the dollar-denominated financial system and its prospect of default looming. While the war has boosted Putin's standing in opinion polls, it has also prompted a mass exodus of educated Russians and prompted a draconian crackdowns at home, end quote. While the previous summary brought us through the end of the Cold War and fall of the Soviet Union, this takes our knowledge through the modern day, even touching on the invasion which took place this past February. Obviously, Russia and the Ukraine have extensive historical ties, those memories striking different connotations depending on the perspective they are approached from. In the past 40 years, the Ukraine has taken on the project of uniting the country, a task which proved extremely difficult given Ukraine's long history of being lorded over. However, the threats of Russian reoccupation have allowed the modern leadership in Ukraine to accelerate the pace of cultural diffusion, granting the nation a sense of unity not experienced in decades. The Ukrainian population has turned more and more in favor of Western integration, and as such, the influence of organizations like the EU and NATO have become apparent. This poses an obvious threat to the long-term plan for Russian leadership, which undoubtedly involves recapturing the Ukraine. This begs an obvious question, which was enunciated in an essay published by the Atlantic Council earlier this year. Quote, Why did Vladimir Putin invade Ukraine? The answer to this question really depends on when you're asking. In the months leading up to the invasion, the Russian dictator focused his ire on NATO and sought to blame rising tensions around Ukraine on the military alliances post-Cold War expansion. 
As his troops crossed the border on February 24th, Putin changed tack and declared a crusade against Ukrainian Nazis. More recently, he, he has sought to portray Ukraine as a terrorist state while insisting that Russia is in fact fighting against Satanism. None of these arguments stand up to serious scrutiny. Instead, the various different narratives come out of, coming out of the Kremlin reflect Moscow's increasingly desperate effort to justify what is in reality an old-fashioned colonial war of imperial conquest. Putin has long sought to use NATO expansion as an excuse for his own aggressive foreign policies. This plays well with the Russian public and also resonates among segments of the international community who believe the United States has become too dominant since the end of the Cold War. However, Putin's attempts to position the invasion of Ukraine as a re reasonable response to NATO encroachment have been comprehensively debunked by his own actions. According to Reuters, Ukraine informed Russia during the first days of the invasion that it was ready to meet Moscow's demands and rule out the possibility of future NATO membership, only for this offer to be rejected by Putin. Ukrainian President Zelensky went public in the following weeks with similar proposal to abandon Ukraine's NATO ambitions, but Russia chose to continue its invasion. End quote. While the story of Ukrainian Nazis begs some ex explanation, it is so far off track and tied up in the history between the two nations that we don't really have time to get into it here. Let it suffice to say that this is merely the Kremlin justifying the invasion via whatever means necessary. While we won't discuss it further in this episode, I do recommend going down that rabbit hole yourself when you have a little extra time. Anyway, that brings us through today, with the Russian invasion dragging onwards and winter quickly approaching. As re was reported by BBC late last week, quote, Ukrainian President Zelensky says 85 missiles were launched on Tuesday and 20 more were expected to hit the country. At least one person is killed in the strikes on Ukraine's capital, Kiev, and the situation across the country is described as critical after mi missile strikes or missile strike energy facilities. It's not clear whether Tuesday's missile strikes will affect the outcome of a draft declaration seen by news agencies, which says Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is strongly condemned by most countries of the G20. Russian's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, criticizes Western nations for what he describes as the politicization of the G20 declaration. Zelensky tells the G20 leaders by video link that Russia's destructive war must end now. Meanwhile, China praises Russia's position that a nuclear war must never be fought when the two countries' foreign ministers met at the summit, adding that it shows Russia's rational and responsible attitude, end quote. After the break, we will dive into the response from NATO, thereby tying today's discussion to the topic at hand. So, stay tuned. This episode of Stock Issues is presented by the Missoula Debate League. Founded by Eli Brown, the Missoula Debate League seeks to empower students from across Montana, Eastern Washington, and Northern Idaho in their journey to become better debaters, students, and, most importantly, people. We just launched our second round of debate briefs, which are currently available for free on our website. We highly recommend taking a look at those briefs as they are full of resources meant to better prepare debaters for competition. We are even offering private coaching for the upcoming season, meant to supplement the coaching already provided through your school. 
Learn more about our experience, sliding fee scale, or sign up today for a free virtual consultation at www.missoulodebateleague.com. Now, back to the show. Quote, NATO condemns in the strongest possible terms Russia's brutal and unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine, which gravely undermines international security and stability, and is a blatant violation of international law. NATO allies call on Russia to immediately stop the war and withdraw all forces from Ukraine to fully respect international humanitarian law and to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access and assistance to all persons in need. Since Russia's legal annexation of Crimea and destabilization of eastern Ukraine in 2014, NATO has adopted a firm position in full support of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity within its internationally recognized borders. The Allies strongly condemn and will not recognize Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea and denounce its temporary occupation. NATO also condemns Russia's illegal attempt to annex four regions of Ukraine in September 2022, which is the largest attempted annexation of European territory by force since the Second World War. The sham referendum in those regions were were engineered in Moscow and imposed on Ukraine. They have no legitimacy, and NATO will not recognize them. These lands are Ukraine and will always be Ukraine. The overwhelming vote in the United Nations General Assembly condemning Russia's attempted annexations sent a clear and strong message that Russia is isolated and the world stands with Ukraine in defense of the rules-based international order, end quote. That text, taken from NATO's website, essentially summarizes NATO's position in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As with any statement of this kind, it acts primarily as a declaration, insofar as it provides no real details in terms of the support NATO is providing to the Ukrainian state at this point in time. However, it does mention an important aspect of the invasion, that being the referendum that took place in September in multiple Ukrainian provinces. That referendum resulted in further calls for support from NATO by the Ukrainian leadership, which further inflamed the situation due to the history we discussed before. As was discussed by the Atlantic Council in an analysis piece published just after the referendum took place, quote, On September 23rd through 27th, Russia conducted a sham sham referendums on joining Russia in the Lunansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, and Kyrgyzstan oblasts of Ukraine. These fake votes were illegal, according to international law. No credible observers viewed the voting or counting process, while anecdotal reports indicated while multiple reports indicated numerous instances of people forced to vote at gunpoint. At a September 30th Kremlin ceremony, Putin signed agreements incorporating the four regions into Russia. He asserted that Russia would defend our land with all the forces and resources we have. However, Russia does not even control all of the territory it claims to be annexing. Meanwhile, the Russian leader's declaration has not stopped the Ukrainian military from pressing forward with counteroffensives in the Kyrgyzstan, Donetsk, and Luhansk regions. Immediately following Putin's signature of the incorporation agreements, Zelensky responded by stating that his country was seeking accelerated accession into NATO. 
This repost again made clear that an earlier Ukrainian offer to accept neutrality was no longer on the table. Under NATO rules, approval for Ukrainian membership would require a consensus of all 30 members. The reality is that Ukraine currently does not have the votes it needs to get on membership track. The reason is clear. Article 5 of the NATO treaty commits allies to treat an attack against one as an attack against all. If Ukraine, now under attack by Russia, became a member, other allies would be obligated to come to its defense, the assumption being with their armed forces. Many NATO countries are providing arms and other military assistance to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia, but they have drawn a red line against offering their forces for Ukraine's defense and have made clear that they wish to avoid a direct NATO-Russia clash. And there is a logic to that. A Russian defeat against Ukraine would not be existential for Russia, although it certainly might not benefit Putin's longevity in the Kremlin. However, were U.S. and NATO military forces to enter the war on Ukraine's behalf, that could well change how the conflict is viewed in Moscow, where many would regard the U.S. and NATO entry as aimed as not just defending Ukraine, but at destroying Russia. They could see the war as existential. Things could soon become unpredictable and very dicey. End quote. The use of very dicey there, is probably referring to the same thing that made the Cold War unpredictable, insofar as both nations have nuclear weapons and the most recent nuclear treaty no longer binds the two nations to non-proliferation. As was noted before, NATO has begun deploying a nuclear umbrella on Russia's western flank, obviously threatening military leadership in Moscow as a result. As of now, NATO has been limited by this fact, as was discussed there by the Atlantic Council. NATO and its members have declared support for Ukraine, have condemned Russia's offensive actions, and are providing all sorts of resources to Ukraine, stopping just short of forces themselves. Up to this point, the tactic seems to have been wildly effective. Ukraine held off the initial invasion and has dragged the conflict out over months, slowly rolling back the Russian war machine inch by inch. Kyrgyzstan, one of the provinces within which the f- one of the fake referendums took place, was recently retaken by Ukrainian forces, a major victory for Ukraine and the West more generally. However, as has been the case in almost every Russian retreat throughout history, the suffering is far from over. As was reported by Al Jazeera, quote, NATO chief Jen Stolberg has said he is waiting to see how Russia's withdrawal from Kyrgyzstan proceeds, but if confirmed, it would be another victory for Ukraine. We have to see how the situation on the ground develops in the coming days. But what is clear is that Russia is under heavy pressure, and if they leave Kyrgyzstan, it would be another victory for Ukraine, he said in Rome, where he held talks with the new Italian prime minister. Ukraine said on Tuesday its forces had reclaimed a dozen villages in the southern Kyrgyzstan region, a day after Russia ordered its its troops to withdraw from the uh, enormous city. Russia said on Thursday its forces had begun to pull out. Kiev's forces have zeroed in on Kyrgyzstan city with a pre-war population of 280,000 people and cut off supply lines from recent weeks as part of a larger counteroffensive in the eastern and southern Ukraine that has pushed Russian troops out of a wide swath of territory. Recapturing Kyrgyzstan could allow Ukraine to win back lost territory in the Zaporizhzhia region and other southern areas, including Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014. 
if Russia implements its withdrawal from an area that President Vladimir Putin proclaimed annexed a month a month ago, it would be its biggest retreat since its force and forces were driven back from the outskirts of Kiev in March. A Russian retreat could also raise domestic pressure on the Kremlin to escalate the conflict. End quote. While the retreat may be good news for Kiev in and of itself, as I mentioned before, there was plenty of damage done, even in the withdrawal. Quote, President Zelensky has accused Russian troops of destroying critical infrastructure during their withdrawal from the city of Kyrgyzstan. Kiev's forces re-entered Kyrgyzstan, the only major Ukrainian city to fall to Russian forces, last week. But in a nightly address, Mr. Zelensky said Moscow's forces had mined all important objects in the region as they retreated. The comments came ahead of his address to G20 Summit of World Leaders. This is what the Russian flag means, complete desolation, Mr. Zelensky said. There is no electricity, no communication, no internet, no television. The occupiers destroyed everything themselves on purpose. This is their special occupation. On the eve of winter, the Russian occupiers destroyed absolutely all critical infrastructure for the people. Absolutely all important objects in the city and region are mined, he added. End quote. The coming of winter is especially important in this story, as it has been in almost any story of Russian conflict throughout history. From Napoleon's conquest to the Nazi backstabbing which characterized the second half of the Second World War, Russia has long used winter to its advantage, a second general, if you will. Unfortunately for Russia, it appears as though Putin's army intends to use a similar tactic in coming months, essentially starving out the Ukrainian population into surrender. Yet, it would seem that all of the armies Russia has defeated, the Ukrainian people are much more accustomed to the cold, and are much more prepared for the winter. Plus, they have the support of the West. As was reported by Politico in recent weeks, Western countries are speeding up shipments of winter clothing, new rounds of artillery, and counter-drone defenses to Kiev as Ukrainian and Russian forces prepare for a months-long grind amidst, amid the mud and ice. Both sides have fought to gain advantage before the freeze sets in, but Ukraine has moved fast and with discipline since the summer, executing quick campaigns that recaptured thousands of miles of territory that, is now, that has them now pressing on to the strategic su- southern city of Kyrgyzstan. It's an area that will see brutal fighting as artillery shells and frozen temperatures become the most fear fo- feared foes on both sides of the front line. I think we've seen a real shift in the last three months, one Western official told reporters on the sidelines of a NATO summit in Brussels last week. The Ukrainians are on their front foot, and they certainly feel prepared for the winter campaign. The donation packages that are going to Ukraine are very much focused on the winter. End quote. As I noted at the beginning of this episode, the conflict in Ukraine is ongoing and will probably continue for many more months. However, given the recent slowdown, it seems very likely that debaters will begin incorporating the conflict into their own cases, as the situation is no longer changing day to day. Though complex, the issue is certainly manageable, and debaters ought to be prepared to discuss the implications for the NATO alliance on either side of the debate. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's edition of Stock Issues, and until next time, go win some rounds.
Thank you again for tuning into the latest edition of Stock Issues, Russia's Greatest Temptation, presented by the Missoula Debate League. We recently released the second round of MDL Debate Briefs, available for free on our website. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and you can now listen to Stock Issues wherever podcasts are found. Please don't forget to rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for being a part of our community, and be sure to tune in next time for another edition of Stock Issues.